0: Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. It's going to be a great one, folks. We have some great people to talk to. First, we have uh, Clavon Harris, who worked in urban schools, saw a whole lot of what was going on in there and documents it with the expectation that Folks understanding the the ills that's occurring in the urban schools can be solved after folks know what the real genesis is. Secondly, I have Yvette Avery herod our what I like to call our union specialist she's a union activist and she's out there helping out folks in Alabama and elsewhere with regards to um, keeping them fed etc., while they strike. They've been on strike, I think, for over nine months now. And of course, uh, today we're going to have a short snippet from Tom Hartman. I talked to him and gave him an extensive interview that will play tomorrow. But I have him discussing the state of Putin, the state of Putin. And I quite I readily agree with what he had to say. And of course, Venetia Williams is going to talk about 52 on 52. We taped that last week, 52 on 52. Remember KPFT is 52 years old. But I want to address one of our wonderful conservative callers who called the station. She was upset at me. And if you're listening right now, my good conservative friend, uh, my new friend, uh, understand that when she called complaining about me, I didn't take it as an offense. I took it as an ideological debate, an ideological exchange. So I called her up. And, you know, I, uh, in that book that I wrote called It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relative Friends and Neighbors, she addressed it and said, but you don't talk to us. And what I think she realized is that, yes, I do. And not only that. What I think she realized, she complained because I said, industries that are critical to your well-being, critical to your life, when for-profit attempts to screw you, which she agrees is occurring, those industries should be nationalized. And she didn't like that word. That nationalized word kind of irked her. And I understand why. When you are programmed from a particular point of view, It is easy for that to happen. Well, I asked, what are the items that I believe in that you don't? She could not name one item that I wanted that she didn't, except she was concerned. The government taking over something, even though the government took over, I mean, government runs water and everybody's happy with their water supply. So in effect, we didn't really have a disagreement. We had others come in between to create a false disagreement. So, always remember that. So, as it turns out, I have a new friend. We're going to continue talking. I asked her a big favor. I said, I want you to keep listening to Politics Done Right. Can you do that? And listen to it objectively, not through the lens of Fox News, not through the lens of OAN, not through the lens of Newsmax, but through the lens of what it is that you know that you need that we as a country should have and if we do that it's gonna be magic to show that we can actually communicate i went that step beyond i didn't just say oh she didn't want you know that's not what she wants i went ahead and say i am going to talk to her how i start this baby let's get busy Understand this. Whenever you see Fox News, Peter Doocy asking questions, we all know what he's doing. He's trying to embarrass the administration. But what these people don't understand is in a time where the Biden administration's uh, poll numbers are low, not because of what they're doing, but because of how others are interpreting the situation in a false manner. When Peter Doocy goes in a press conference and tries to embarrass the administration by doing some sort of a gotcha question for Jen Psaki, they hurt themselves. They hurt the purpose because they want to put out misinformation, right? But it gives the administration and Jen Psaki as their spokesperson, the ability to further educate, to further instruct, to further inform the american populace and this is exactly what jen did using the when when he tried to purport that inflation was a biden thing or when he tried to imply that the only solution that, that that the only thing that democrats are saying is that it's the fault of Putin. check this out we'll take it on the other side
1: Thank you, Jen. We just heard you say again that you think inflation is going to be temporary. We've heard you say that it was going to be temporary since last spring. So how long do you guys think temporary is?
2: Well, again, Peter, I think what we do is we rely on the assessments of the Federal Reserve and of outside economic analysts who give an assessment of how long it will last. The expectations and their assessment at this point continues to be that it will moderate by the end of the year. There's also no question that when a foreign dictator dictator invades a foreign country, and when that foreign dictator is the head of a country that is the third largest supplier of oil in the in the world, that that is going to have an impact. And it is.
1: And so to that point, <clears throat> inflation goes up today. The president's statement blames the Putin price hike. Are you guys just going to start blaming Putin for everything until the midterms?
2: Well, we've seen the price of gas go up at least 75 cents since President Putin lined up troops on the border of Ukraine.
1: and. And last month, the statement didn't mention the Putin price hike, it mentioned inflation because of the pandemic. Why is that?
2: Well, Peter, last year last two years there was a pan- global pandemic everyone who's uh global economists have all agreed that that has been the biggest contributor to date of inflation because of the impact on the supply chain obviously global events impact the economy the global economy as well as global inflation and the uh, price hikes as a result that have ex- escalated over the course of time of president Putin's further invasion of uh, the impact on the global oil Iowa markets are of course having an impact
0: now as you see all she did with those responses was to simply give americans another way of hearing what the truth was and they could immediately put that right next to the protagonist from fox news peter Doocy. peter Doocy misinformation answered by jen Psaki. and what does he have Nothing to come back with. Now Americans know better. That is why these press conferences are important. Let the right wing continue doing what they do. You know, it, when it, it, on politics done right, people always say, Egberto, why do you entertain other people coming in and giving misinformation? Because if they're not, they give that in misinformation to me and they give that misinformation to a lot of other people they know. But if they give the misinformation to me, I get a chance to address it. And a lot of people who follow them are gonna get a chance who otherwise would not have gotten the chance to hear the truth, now they can hear it. And that's the importance that we have to learn as progressives, engage, engage. Don't be scared to confront, engage, engage, because others then will learn what the truth really is. Peter Ducey, Schooled by Jen Psaki once again. Tom. I want to hear your thoughts on Ukraine, Russia, etc. I think uh, Putin is the dog that caught the
1: car. Oh, my God. Explain. Well, you know, he, he thought he was going to take down Ukraine and, um, you know, went yapping after it and, and didn't realize that it was as big and powerful as, you know, the, the dog meat car kind of thing. And now he's, he's in deep trouble. Um, I think this is probably going to be the end of his presidency. Um, whether he destroys Ukraine and conquers it and kills Zelensky or imprisons him or not. Um, I think his his goose is cooked. I really do. Uh, don't you I,
0: I mean, we think alike. I said that on my show a few days ago. I said I think this is the end of Putin. Yeah. I think it's over. I, yeah. I think this was such a but you know what else you know what I think is worse, Tom, and you tell me if you, you agree? I think that what he showed is that he had a military that isn't nearly as mighty as the rest of the world believe it was, or it is. And in that process has not only destroyed his presidency, but the reputation of the country as being one of the leading countries in the world. So it looks like they're going to be the,
1: as if in effect, the gas station with nuclear bombs. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the thing where uh, Zelensky's, um, uh, minister for anti-corruption, sent a thank you letter to Sergei Soshu, I think is his name. No, but I didn't. What did it- <laughs> He's the German He or he's the uh, Russian. Um, uh, he's the he- their equivalent of the chief, chief you know, the, the, the de- secretary of defense. Right. And uh, and he attached pictures. And he said, you know, he thanked him for using egg cartons as on the outside of tanks as armor. They literally. Oh, no where the armor was egg cartons it was for the for photographs and they had brought them in um he thanked him for soldiers having uh cardboard as as uh, body armor body armor mm-hmm. yeah i mean it was like you know and and he just lays it out i mean he lays out the details about how the defense minister had been skimming money off the top for himself in, in, out of the russian army and now the army is like incompetent and it was uh, you know this is you know, having a comedian as president—it I mean, was—it was It was, it was, a, he was hes a, great. He's—it's worth finding. I mean, this—I am uh, going this, to look for it. It's—it's uh, it's spectacular. It's—it's uh, it's amazing. Well,
0: anyhow, Tom Hartman, thank you for kindly for appearing once again on
1: Politics Done Right, and thank you so much for having me, Egberto.
0: Welcome to another edition of Politics Done Right. Today we have the
1: honor of speaking to Yvette Avery. She's a
0: working mother, providing for her family. She has. Had been, she's been a Teamster union steward at UPS as well as an activist for workers' rights throughout the country. She has been working on the most extensive and ex- effective organizing campaign with the IAM to get union representation for Delta ramp and cargo workers. Delta recently. Well, I tell you what, I, I'm going to just say, Welcome to Politics on Righty, Bit. How are you doing today?
3: I'm good. How are you?
0: I am doing fine. I I want you to give me a three or four line synopsis of who Yvette is before we get into questions that I want to ask about where is the labor movement right now. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what really got you into this stuff?
3: I I think it was just in my blood um, because I have family who've been fighting for workers for a long time who are maybe even in the political arena. So We've always been those type of people, and I was just kind of raised that way in order to always help somebody else. So my thing is, anytime I see any type of injustices, especially with working people, I, I jump in. So that's something I was doing even before I became a, a union steward. I pounded the streets. Anytime somebody had something going on with workers' rights or any activism in that in that area, I was there.
0: Now, uh, again, tell us a little bit about, you had your own little in- incident with Delta. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and then we'll go into further.
3: Yeah, so I worked for Delta Airlines for seven years. Uh, started out as a ramp worker, went upstairs as a gate agent. And as I was upstairs as a gate agent, started wearing the union pin and was a lot more active in the, the unionizing process for the below-wing and cargo worker. Well, that led to them all of a sudden saying that my job at UPS was a conflict of interest. Mind you, I had already been at UPS five years prior to start working at Delta. On my resume, they were fully aware that I worked at that company, but now it became an issue that I was out in front as a union activist trying to get the workers um, organized. So at that point, they gave me an ultimatum saying that my job was a conflict and that I needed to choose which job that I wanted to keep. So of course I said, I don't have the issue. Delta has the issue. I want to keep both of my jobs. I worked on both. I need them both to sustain my family. So therefore, I want to keep both of my jobs. But ultimately, they terminated me. And the fight content was started at that point, of course, for me with the uh, hashtag Stand With The Vet movement that I started online. I made videos, did interviews, and you graciously gave me a spot on your show to you know, get the, the information out as to how Delta treated workers and those who are fighting for workers' rights and how they were union-busting at, at its finest.
0: Now, is your case now closed or you continue to fight that particular case?
3: Well, it's definitely closed now. It was a two-year fight, but the way the state of Georgia works is the right to work at real state, so in reality, workers really don't have what they need to fight corporations, unless you have something, you know, they can get it for discrimination maybe, but in reality, there's no real rights for workers in the state of Georgia unless you have a union contract. So thankfully at the other job, I was fully aware of the rights as a unionist, uh, being a union steward with uh, the Teamsters, of how that works. So I'm very thankful for having a union contract, know the benefits of it, and wanted my coworkers at Delta to have the same thing.
0: Now, I wanna ask you something about, because I I learned this from you. Uh, When you are in a right to work state, which means a right to screw worker state, that's what that really means. If you have a union contract in those states, it is
3: enforceable, correct? Oh, yes. Yes, it's enforceable. Contracts are enforceable. Of course, no contract is above the law. So if you have something legally binding that uh, the contract can't override that. But as far as, you know, the way the employer has to go through a process to terminate employees, that stuff is included. And it's upheld, of course.
0: So let me ask you a question. Then. What, what is the difference between unions in a right-to-work state and unions in other states?
3: Okay, so the major difference is if you are in a state that's a right-to-work state, you do not have to join the union. Even if you're in a company that's unionized, you don't have to join, you don't have to pay dues, but the union still has to represent you. Now, that's something that a lot of us do not like, because if you're getting the benefits of what the union is negotiating, if you're getting the benefits of them fighting for you, you should pay your fair share in dues right. to help keep that going. But if you're in a state, of course, it's a unionized state that's, you know, not an at-will right-to-work state, then they don't have to represent non-paying them. So, and I think even people who don't have to pay regular dues have to pay a certain fee anyway. Um, so... It's, that's the major difference you still have to okay, represent well, those I mean, those that's, not, mean,
0: that's a funding difference right that actually tells you whether the union can survive or not
3: it and does I guess, and i always give the, the analogy i say hey i'm going to move into your house i know you, the bills are going to go up but i'm not going to pay you anything i'm just going to live there that's the same thing with you. i'm going to come to this job i'm going to get those free benefits medical dental and vision i'm gonna get that pension that you get but i'm not going to help you know what i'm saying pay into anything to keep it going so that's the analogy I use. I said, hey, I'm coming. I'm moving in. Get ready. I'm moving in. It so is they don't ridiculous. like it like that and they see the perspective. Yeah.
0: Now, interestingly, um, we've been sort of happy during this uh, with the results of what has started to occur uh, uh, after the pandemic. Based on your experience in the union movement, do you feel like this is real? Has Have workers really now gained power and now lasting power? Or is this just a phase?
3: I truly believe that the, during the COVID incident, and when it mainly came out, everybody realized the true importance of workers. The companies, of course, knew it already, but people kind of didn't realize their value and realized how much they really meant to the corporations. And the only way that the corporations make the profits that they do is because the workers come in and, you know, make those profits for them. So uh, the, the workers begin to wake up and say, hey, oh, now all of a sudden we're essential. Okay, now all of a sudden you can give us these bonuses, Oh, you can throw this at us, but you couldn't simply just raise our benefits, you you know, well, give us benefits and great ones. You couldn't simply increase our minimum wages. You couldn't, you know, our hourly wages, things that they could have done before, and then all of a sudden they can do it now. People are realizing, okay, something's not adding up. So that's something that means you can do more for us before but she just chose not to. So I think a lot of people in a lot of areas have woke up and we see that uh, one of the main things is Striketober over when we had a lot of strikes going on and strikes have continually been going on. Tell, actually, tell us um, a little
0: bit about the strikes that you know about that are active around the country.
3: Well, a couple of weeks ago, I actually went down to uh, Alabama to the um, UMWA workers. So those are the mine workers in Alabama. And they've been on strike for now 11 months and counting, which is now, I think, holding the record for the longest, uh, maybe, uh, strike there. And what they want is you know just basic things. I mean, my workers have had it hard in this country, and they definitely should be rewarded for the type of work they do because it's very, very uh, dangerous. And they should get what they're supposed to get if you're making those type of profits. Like I mean, the companies are not missing any money. They're making more and more and more profitable. A lot of them are more profitable. During the pandemic than before, mm-hmm. and so they definitely should get exactly what they deserve. So we were out there with those brothers and sisters and talking to them and seeing the things that they needed. I mean, everyday essentials and basics that they did not have because they've been on strike for so long. So I made sure I posted how to donate and give, you know, to their strike fund, as well as they have a a whole pantry set up so they can come get food and clothing items and whatever they need for the children, things like that. So. Uh, that's one uh strike, and that same day we also supported the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who are now getting a chance to do another election because the first election they had last year, of course, Amazon had so much union busting going on, it was ridiculous, and they caused them not to win that time, so the n l r b which is the labor board national relations labor board, decided that they should get another opportunity. To vote. So we were at a rally for them and heard some great stories from different people who work there and things that they go through and why they deserve to have a union. And they, they definitely should get
0: it. Now, uh, Yvette, you make a hell of a speaker for the movement. What always concerns me is that we don't get enough Yvettes out there in front of a camera, letting people see what's going on. And and you know, there's there's power in having people see other people do powerful things, right? In other words, the, 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 the goal of the corporation, including what you saw Amazon do in Alabama, is to try to let people know, don't do that. It's scary because suppose it doesn't work out, you're in trouble. When you have an event out there that says, look, not only am I working, but I have actually gone through the whole system. Hell, they've, they've done turn. I mean, fired me. I'm still here, you know, right. be the spokesperson to tell people you've got power. Um, what? And maybe this is a job for you, um, Yvette. Maybe you need to uh, start a training business for the union worker. I, I'm not kidding, actually, at all. Uh, why can't we see more of what's going on? Because it's all over the country. Why can't we see more of it on TV? On, even if it's not on TV, more than just in that, you know how Facebook has a way of keeping people in, locked up in their cells, getting outside of those cells so other people see what's going on. How do we get there?
3: We have to keep pushing. I mean, it's gonna take us all in different avenues to make our voice be heard because as you say, most of the mainstream will not cover it. i could get no one to cover my story when it comes to mainstream media. I reached out personally to the Fox News, to the CNN, nothing. Anytime it it comes, especially in Atlanta, it, dealing with Delta Airlines, come in with them. They own the city, so nobody wanted to touch them. I couldn't even get an attorney here. That's how crazy it was. I had to go out of state to get an attorney just to go after them. So my whole thing is, people have to realize it's going to take you stepping up and doing it on your own, and then grouping together with like-minded people, and we can get it done. It, it, it can be done. Well, you know, uh, you're
0: a hell of a spokesperson. What else? What else going on around? Um, before, I want to do a little digression here. You were in a uh-huh. truck. What are you doing in a truck?
3: <laughs> so, of course, as I was terminated from Delta, I already worked for UPS and decided, hey, what was best for me at the time was to go full-time. So now I'm a full-time package car driver uh, with UPS. So I just crossed over from part-time to full-time and out here delivering everybody's packages throughout the pandemic. I started during the pandemic doing the deliveries, and it's you know it's been an experience. But, you know,
0: of I'm, I'm honored that you actually kind of parked the truck to have a little talk with politics done right. I'm like excited about, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're coming. I'm like super honored. Hey, she is in that truck. Hey, what else is happening? Tell me what else. First of all, I, I just mentioned about the media not doing what I think the media needs to do. Uh, and I also mentioned that you are very savvy in the way you know how to use media to get the message out. What do you want us to do? Not only, when I say us, I don't mean the independent media. I mean the consumers of independent media who is who actually needs to be a part. What what is your message to them?
3: Well, definitely to hold every uh, corporation accountable for whatever they do to their workers. Pay attention to what's going on and support workers in all their endeavors. No matter it's from fast food, you know. They're considered essential too. They didn't realize how essential they were until you know we had our pandemic. So whoever has a fight, who's fighting for wages, who's fighting for benefits, who's fighting for you know healthcare, whatever in these workplaces, please support those workers. Go out whenever you can. If you can't be there in person, you know do something online. You know promote whatever they're doing. Try to get the word out and help in any way you can. Because I know my time is limited. A lot more now than it used to be. So that's why it was very important for me to take this time out to do your show because it's invaluable. This is the type of thing that we need to do. Make a few minutes to do anything we can to further uh, the cause.
0: Well, you know, I I think that is so important. And like I said, you know, you do it and you do it well. Um, You know what? My last question always is, what should I have asked you that I didn't? (laughs)
3: <laughs> um, what else did I find out now as a driver that I happen not to have known before? <laughs> Let me hear it. Well, I have a lot of safety concerns when it comes to driving. and Of course, I started an a, a online petition about that, and I'm going to be fighting for that to get more safety precautions and things put in place for drivers out here because it's a lot of things we never think about until we actually do the job. So that's something we definitely uh, need to take care of. And you'll be seeing a lot in the future about.
0: Can you tease us with a few of the things that we never thought about?
3: (laughs) Well, you never think about as we are out here delivering, we do not know what situations we are walking up on. We could be walking up on a domestic situation. We've had people kidnapped. We've had people shot. We've had people, you know, things happen to you know, drivers out here on the road that you just don't think about. You just say, hey, my package is coming. But you never know where we are, where we're going and the things that we deal with. So those are just a couple of things. We, we walk up on things that you would imagine. And, you know, we have to deal with them on a daily basis and deal with the management, you know, coming at us crazy because they think we should be doing this or that. But it's a lot to deal with out here. Amazing.
0: Well, Yvette, it's always my pleasure to speak to you. Like I tell you all the time, and I mean this from the depths of my heart, you're one of my heroes because you are on the ground actually getting things done. And you know what I believe? I believe the people who are getting things done are the ones who are worthy. So um, thank you so kindly once again for appearing on Politics Done Right. Yvette Avery, our national Union specialist, that's what I'm gonna call her. Thank you so kind for having been <laughs> on Politics Done Right.
3: Thank you so much for having me again.
0: Hey guys, as you guys know, we have been alive for 52 years. And you know what? Venicia Williams, one of our board members, came out with a hell of an idea. And I want <laughs> her to kind of pump it up for us. But all of you guys that are listening to us right now, fun drive is over, but we still need you guys. Hey, Venetia, tell us what you think we, not what you think, tell us what we as members of Pacifica, as members of KPFT need to do right now.
4: Well, right now, you know, we celebrate our 52nd birthday and because we didn't do anything last year because of COVID. Everybody's been asking what we, what we gonna do, what we gonna do, what we gonna do, what we gonna do. So I came up with 52 on 52, which means $52 for 52 years. It's a fundraiser I've done with countless other nonprofit organizations. And so the premise of it is that you just donate 50, simple Simon. You donate $52 for 52 years. That's all you gotta do. And it's our birthday celebration, and that's what it's for.
0: Look. Let me tell you, Pacifica is a or rather KPFT is a hell of a radio station. We serve Houston. We are here to serve and that's yes, what we, we do. do. And you know, if you just go to our website and go to w- w- Wait, how do they donate anyway? You tell me.
4: Okay, they donate by going to kpft.org and the um the fund drive phone number. You know, I don't know that phone number by heart, but it's
0: 713-526-5738. Come on, Felicia.
4: <laughs> okay, you know I never memorize. They need to get a simpler phone number five two six six thousand or something. <laughs> I, don't know. I can't remember, but but anyway, you just go to those two. You either go to the website or you go to the phone number and just follow the just follow the prompts. Well, and it, then you know how they ask you for what show you want it to be for. Just say fifty two on fifty two. Well,
0: It'll know, come you know up. What? It's It'll, so funny. I I did it even simpler because you know I, I went on the website and that they had that thing that said PayPal and since you guys gonna key on oh 52,
4: yeah PayPal oh I yeah just
0: click on PayPal and I did the fifty two bucks because you embarrassed right. me in the board meeting because it was like you mean you haven't done your fifty-two dollars yet. And like, I
4: did not do that. Hey, I did not do
0: might as well you had. <laughs> <laughs> Because of no, it.
4: I said that all board members need to donate and they do, because when you what's his name is working his self crazy trying to find grants. And the first thing I'm serious, a lot of people, if you're not into grant writing, you don't understand it. But if they're going to shell out big money, the first thing they're going to ask you is what is your board? One hundred percent is your board? One hundred percent. And that's the first question they're gonna ask. So fifty two to me, fifty two dollars. Okay. And let's say, okay, you it's hard times or whatever. You can stretch. I, you know, I don't like to promote this, but you can. You can stretch the fifty two dollars out for I, a year. But you know
0: what, Venetia, I follow your lead. And the truth of the matter is, you've been working in this business for a long time in making sure that people get, get good programming and making people sure that these nonprofit radio stations can stay alive, especially in these times when we need it, I just want to thank you because oh. everybody knows, everybody knows this 52 on 52 campaign is yours. It has a ring to it. And for all of you that are listening to Politics Done Right right now, this is now. look- Venetia is one of our our trusted members. And I tell you
5: what, oh, that's so if, sweet.
0: if she says 52 Just on 52, <laughs> let's do 52 on 52. So call right now, 713-526-5738, 52 on 52. Tell them that you want to give that 52 bucks. And I tell you what, the easy way, go to kpft.org and click the donate button or click the PayPal button, whichever or one. Click yeah, and choose $52 and, and keep this station alive. We're still working very hard to get that new building, that new equipment. And oh, everything. yeah, we're
4: getting a new building, y'all. And we got, I got some ideas for that, too, but I just did not say that out loud because I all the parties haven't gotten together yet. But, well, you
0: know, um, we, we're we, we, you know, let, let's stick to 52 on 52 until mm-hmm. you get all of that, that stuff hammered out, Venetia. And then we're going to get it done. So, folks, again, we want to thank we I, I want to thank very kindly Venetia for appearing on Politics Done Right to promote oh. this 52 on 52. Because I tell you what, KPFT needs needs good people out there working yes, their butts do. off for for this station. And Venetia is one of our trusted members that's out there busting her butt for this station. Venetia. Williams, thank you so kindly for coming Aww, on. To thank you, Embratel. You know I love you. You're one of my favorite people. Well, you know, you know, it's like ditto, ditto. Yeah, you're one of my favorite people. We got it, girl. Thank you very much. All right, so no, here. thank you, and thank you, everybody. Huh? Fifty-two on fifty-two. There you go. Fifty-two on fifty-two. Thank you, folks. Today we have the honor of speaking to Clavon Harris. She left a career of writing for television behind and returned to Philadelphia, where she planned to pursue a career in teaching easing in as a substitute. She was confronted by disruption and violence that undermined both the learning environment and her aspirations. Still hoping to contribute, she wrote an insightful first-hand account of the conditions and real life challenges teachers and students face on a daily basis in her book called Sub. Inside the notorious school of District of Philadelphia. Hello, and welcome to Politics Done Right, Ms. Harris. How are you doing today?
5: I'm fine, Alberto. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: I, I tell you what, um, I am I am excited to hear a little bit about what's in your book and what you found as a sub, because I think first of all, let me let me just tell you something about what I think about teachers, and I've been preaching this for a very long time. I think. I think teachers are, uh, represent the most important profession, bar none, because you all are the ones who move knowledge forward. Whether you're an engineer, I'm an engineer, whether you're a lawyer, I have relatives that are lawyers, doctors, relatives that are doctors, etc. You are the ones who move knowledge forward. So I always find it problematic that we don't give the respect are the resources necessary for folks like you to get the
5: job done? First of all, tell us a
0: little bit about yourself.
5: About me? Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, as you said, I, you know, primarily I think of myself as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um that's what I've done for the majority of my life uh when I was in college, uh, you know there were two roads I was thinking about teaching, I was thinking about writing and i I wound up going down the writing road, I spent a lot of time in um ad agencies um in communication departments uh, had a chance to write for t v uh, et cetera, but eventually got to a point where uh, it wasn't going the way I wanted it to go and I didn't feel fulfilled. And I felt like I was wasting the education that I had an opportunity to, um, to have. So I wanted to do something to contribute to, to, you know, to help out the community. And I decided that I was going to become a teacher at the time I was living in Los Angeles there, you can get emergency credentials. So, um, I applied and I was just on the verge of getting a classroom when it occurred to me that, you know, I could actually go home and be near my family and I could teach in Philadelphia. So I decided to come home and then I discovered that Philadelphia doesn't do emergency credentials. (laughs) So I needed to go back and get fully certified in order to teach, which takes about two years. And I was willing to do that. But at the time, they said, but we need substitute teachers right now. So um, we would love for you to sign up and, and get out there and, well, because we're really, really desperate. And so I thought that would give me an opportunity to see what was going on out in the schools. And, and I signed up.
0: Now, I, I, I want to go a little bit before that, because I might not hearing you on the yourself. Weren't you a writer for uh, TV shows, et cetera?
5: I was. I was, I had an opportunity to, I I went to the University of Southern California uh, School of Cinematic Arts for my master's degree. I went to Swarthmore College undergrad. And um, when I graduated from graduate school, I had an opportunity to work on a show called Living Single, um, a show called 704 Hauser, which was one of Norman Lear's shows. Um, And I also worked on a show called For Your Love And then did some freelances for Soul from the Series, Farscape, also freelance for Star Trek, uh, Voyager. So that's what I was doing.
0: The reason I wanted to bring that up is um, you you may you may kind of not play that up as big as it should. But usually when we have a lot of people that get themselves into that industry, the last thing they're going to think about is coming back home and teach there is a special type of person that actually does that. So I, I think we need to get put that part of the context into um, who you are, in my humble opinion. But now, as far as um, as far as what you found when you went to Philadelphia, um, uh, one of the things I think uh, folks say is that I, I think somewhere you asserted that the children pretty much are set up to fail in these schools. Exactly, what do you mean by that?
5: What I mean by that. Is that they're not actually getting the first rate quality education that they need in order to succeed in life. And if you're not getting the education that you need to succeed, then that kind of sets you up for for failure, you know, or for maintaining the status quo. So. You know, it's 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 really hard that, you know, the whole situation is, is very, very complicated. And I don't think that people are necessarily intentionally trying to destroy the lives of children or destroy their futures. But I think that there's there is a certain level of of negligence and um, of not understanding the, the consequences of decisions that are made at the federal level, at state level. Um, everyone knows that resourcing funding is an issue everyone knows this they don't may not necessarily understand all the ins and outs of it but when i first started teaching in philadelphia it was just ridiculous they you know we didn't have decent textbooks there was there were no laptops smart boards uh it was just it was just crazy it was it was very different from going to a private school or a catholic school and the conditions in the schools were were not that great. So, um, you know, that was the first time I went out because I actually subbed at two different times. I subbed from 2001 to 2002 and then I quit because I was like, this is just too hard and I can't do it. Um, and then I want but I wound up writing a journal while I was subbing because I was so frustrated and upset by what I was seeing. Now, is that the, the, the genesis schools? of
0: your book uh, of your book sub inside the Toria School District of Philadelphia?
5: It is. It is. Okay. That's that's where the book came from. I was actually thinking about writing an article. A friend of mine said, hey, I think this is a book, you know, and, and you should really keep at it. And so I started working on the book, but didn't finish it. Got caught up in in working out in corporate America, in uh, advertising agencies, et cetera. And then but it always stayed with me. I always followed what was going on with the schools and and how they were doing. And there was a a lot to follow in Philadelphia and across the U.S. And following Philadelphia, I began to understand that there were things that were happening, things that were that were actually playing out across the country in a lot of different large urban school districts. So I just kind of kept track of that. And then eventually I got to a point where I thought I need to finish that book. I need to go back and finish it. But it's been a while. So I need to go back out and sub again, and see if anything has changed. And when I went back out to sub, I found that some things had changed. Some things had gotten better. Some things had gotten worse. Some of the things that had gotten better were there seemed to be more resources, still not enough money to, to really, you know, make sure that the, the schools were, you know, that their environments were very clean and um, environmentally safe in Philadelphia. We had a, a, a huge problem with, and have a huge problem with asbestos and lead pipes, um, mold, mildew, some schools had uh, bug infestations uh, or mice. And you know, funding is one of the things that that affects all that. You know, I found that there, the teachers, the second time I went out, seemed to be less burnt out, less frustrated, less, you know, trying to figure a way how to get out of teaching um, and uh, more dedicated and determined to make it work. But at the same time, there was so much more disruption in the classroom. When I went back out the second time, it was just it was kind of unbelievable. I came from a Catholic and private school background and that wasn't tolerated in the classroom. You know, school was a safe, calm place, you know, a safe space for you to learn and and grow. And I don't think that a lot of the kids who are in large urban underfunded school districts are, are having that same opportunity.
0: Now, when you talk about because I noticed that's that's mentioned quite a bit how um uh the the classroom is not really kept accountable for discipline and that that sort of a thing. What do you attribute that to other than let's say issues at home and no control in school what what would you suggest that uh, needs to be done in an urban environment to mitigate that
5: problem? You know that was one of the things that that really struck me when I first started subbing, <clears throat> and I had the opportunity to sub at um, all together uh, about sixty-seven different schools. I had over ninety 67? assignments. Sixty-seven different schools. Wow! And I found that that disruption was was prevalent in the vast majority of those schools, and I didn't understand. When I first started subbing, I really didn't understand why I talked to a lot of teachers, administrators, counselors. I did research. And what I came to um, understand and to believe is that there is something called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Mm -hmm. And this is a federal law which dictates that. To the maximum extent appropriate, all children with disabilities Whether those disabilities are disruptive or not, managed or not, are to be educated in the general education setting. And for a lot of kids who have disabilities or disorders, that's fine. And they do well and they thrive in that setting and they can grow and learn. But for some kids, and specifically I'm talking about the children that have emotional and behavioral disorders that are unmanaged and that have learning disabilities that are that are unmanaged and unaddressed. There have been study after study after study that says that these children do better in a smaller environment with teachers who have specialized training, aides that have specialized skills so that they can support them as they grow and as they learn. But unfortunately, because there's a federal law saying that this, you know, that this is the way it's supposed to be, a lot of those children are funneled into the general education classrooms where it's hard for them to thrive and be successful. And so they wind up being not being able to keep up emotionally, uh, socially, academically. And that's hard. That's a lot of stress and pressure on a child. So they you know, some of them have a tendency to to act out, disrupt the class, fight and argue with their classmates, fight and argue with the teachers. Sometimes they resort to violence. They walk in and out of the classrooms, um, scream and holler and cry. And this goes on. Sometimes all day long, it it happens day after day, week after week until eventually the kids graduate and to the next grade and they move to the next grade together. But as they move from grade to grade, that learning loss multiplies by the time by the time they get to, to middle school, they're behind. And by the time they get to high school, for a lot of them, it's too late to catch up.
0: All right. I want to go back to something that you said. I mean, because what you're telling me is that, in fact, there can be some of these laws are bad Uh, now. So, first of all, it is it is correct that uh, these disrupted students don't only disrupt themselves. They probably disrupt their peers as well. Yes. Peers as well. Is that correct?
5: Yes. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things is like they're holding themselves back. And they're also holding back their classmates and they're making it very difficult for the teachers to teach.
0: Now, that being the case, having a bad law that you're talking about, why hasn't anything been done about it after we have the experience that shows uh, that it's problematic, not only for the the people that's disrupting, but the disruptors?
5: You know, that's a that's a great question. You know, I, I don't know that I would say that it's a bad law. You know, I would say that there are some components of it that need to be revised. Um, So, primarily, what the law is for is to make sure that children with disabilities are able to be included in the classroom settings, that they're not um, excluded, they're not pushed to the side, that they're getting the things that they need in order to be successful. I think the problem with the law
3: is that. Um, it doesn't take into account the disruption
5: that happens when the children are not functioning well in the general ed setting. It's not taking into account the fact that a lot of schools just don't have the funds or the personnel to support those kids while they're in the general classroom setting. And it doesn't allow the schools to determine which of the students are actually doing well in the large, you know, in the general ed setting and which of the students would do better in smaller specialized classes.
0: And henceforth, my next question, are these kids the exception based on the way you are talking? The exception has almost now become the rule. And if that is the case, uh, what needs to be done or what can be done?
5: You know, I wouldn't say that they've become the rule. I would say that in the majority of the classrooms I was in, the ones that I was in short term, the ones that I was in long term, it was easier to observe long term. That perhaps there might be two or three kids in that classroom who were very challenging to work with. Um, And then of those two or three, the longer you work with them, you might be able to, you know, establish a relationship work with their parents, work with the counselors in the schools, and kind of get them to, um, you know, just start to, to be able to function well in the classroom. But there might be one child that really is struggling under the burden of whatever their disorder is. That one child can stop the learning process for everyone else in that classroom. If I have to stop teaching a lesson because I have to go pull that kid off of another kid because they're fighting this other kid for no reason, or because they're just constantly disrupting, or they're walking back and forth in and out of the classroom. You know, that's a lot. That that stops the process of learning. So you have to ask yourself, how much are we are those kids losing in terms of education in a single day? Is it 10%, 20%, 30% of their education? And then how does that multiply and how does that impact them in the long run?
0: You know, it's amazing because I mean, there are so many problems that we have in this society that if if, if kids just had good health care, meaning health care, meaning mental health care, body health care, everything, so much of this wouldn't be and be an issue. So um, what would you say uh, you want people who read your book sub inside the notorious school district of Philadelphia, which I imagine uh, based on what you've seen it probably reflects urban schools throughout the country what would you um what would you want folks to get out of that book and also uh, what would you want them to um, do based on what they get out of that book
5: you know it's when i when i first started writing it you know what i wanted to to share with people is i wanted to share my experience because as someone on the outside of this a lot of times you know people will look at an underperforming school or or some schools that they'll term as failing schools and they'll be like well what's wrong with that school it's it's the kids it's the students they just can't do any better or it's the teachers they're not good teachers you know or the administrators don't care and a lot of times it's it's none of the above You know, it's none of the above. At the same time, there is a big problem and people need to understand what it is. So it's not just, you know, it's that and it's also the funding situation. And I just I wanted parents to know that their kids might be dealing with something very difficult on a daily basis at school. And you need to ask your kids what's going on. And you need to ask them every day because they might have a couple of good days and then they may have quite a few bad days because of one child or two children in their in their classroom. So parents need to know and they need to advocate for their kids. And then politicians need to understand the ramifications of the things that they decide. I think in 2004 maybe they decided to revise IDEA and what they added is instead of just making it that uh children with disabilities could be removed from a classroom if they brought in Guns, bombs, or drugs, they added, or if they do serious bodily harm to another child or a teacher. Why are we letting things get to that point where they're doing serious bodily harm? The last assignment I had, the first time I was out, I was there because there was a teacher who had struggled with one child all year long. She kept asking for help. She didn't get the help she needed. And two months before the end of the school year, he pushed her backwards over a chair and she hurt herself really badly. I mean, and that's, that's not a rare instance. There are a lot of teachers who have been hit, kicked. I've been hit. I've been kicked. um, I've been pushed. You know, a lot of, a lot of teachers go through that and it's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not fair. It's not helpful. And it's, and it's not helping to move anything forward.
0: You know, based on what you're saying and, and what you're asking parents to do, it seems like if people simply go ahead and became a bit more engaged in, in the school system, I mean, People are working hard, um, Clavon, and, it, it, you know, the way our society is set up right now, it's just so difficult for people to wear all the hats they have to wear. So we depend on on folks, you know, folks that are writing about this, putting this information out there for other people to make decisions. The last question I always ask of everybody who shows up here is what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't?
5: Um I think that one of the other things that I want to put out there for folks, because a lot of people are like, "Okay, well, that's not my kid's issue. You know, why should I be concerned about this? Um, Funding is an issue. Achievement is an issue. And if if we could raise the achievement level for black and brown students up to the same level as native born white students, the gross domestic product of the United States would increase by $500 billion a year. They've actually done the calculations for that. If we raise the achievement level of all students in the United States, black, brown, white, whatever, to the basic level of achievement on the National Assessment for Education Progress, we raised everyone to that level, there would be an increase of $30 trillion in our gross domestic product, that's a lot of money that could circulate in in the United States, in our economy, uh, and a, a lot of money that would help us remain globally competitive and way more money than we would need to fix and fund all the schools.
0: Clayvon Harris, writer, teacher, author of the book, Sub Inside the Notorious School District of Philadelphia. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right.
5: Hey, Virgil. thank you for having me. I really truly appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much. You can listen and/or watch Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at Facebook.com/slash Politics Done Right or on YouTube Live at PoliticsDoneRight.com/slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My Twitter handle is at Egberto Willis at EGBERTOWILL. IES. But don't you forget, listen to us live on air at KPFT 90.1 FM on Thursdays at noon and at Fridays at 11 a.m. All Central Time. Please get one of my several. Get any two of those books for $200. Any three of those books for $250. The contributions for my books go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT-only membership for $40, a Pacifica-only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to kpft.org. Choose politics done right for the program and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S.
3: That is at Egberto Let us engage.